Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front lines, analyse important political developments in the US, and we speak to a Ukrainian tech leader about his industry during the war and lessons learned from the 19 months of the full-scale invasion. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 20th of October, one year and 238 days since the full-scale invasion began. And joining me today is Associate Editor Dominic Nichols, Assistant Comment Editor Francis Sternley, and our guest is Anton Pavlovsky, CEO and founder of Ukrainian educational tech app Headway. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Let's start with the ongoing situation near Herzon, just across the Dnipro River. We've been talking about it for the last couple of days. It's not massive, we don't think, but it's there. And so we, we should talk about it and just keep noting it because it might yet turn into something. So Russian sources now continue to discuss this larger than usual Ukrainian ground operation on the east bank, the left bank, the Russian-held side of the, of the Dnipro River. Um, Ukrainian forces, we think, have still got a, a limited presence in the area around the shoreline and the Antonivsky Railway Bridge. Now, Russian sources continue to offer slightly diverging claims about the scale of the attacks on the bank, but ISW, Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, continuing to assess that the current Ukrainian action appear to be larger than what would have been what were previously described as just tactical raids. They have they've geolocated footage which indicates Ukrainian forces maintain a presence along the shoreline near the bridge, as I said, despite a number of Russian counterattacks. So it might just be a, a, a lo- you know, longer set of, of raids um, to you know, see if you can exploit an area, test the enemy's strength, disposition, so on and so forth. So we will obviously continue to keep an eye on that. Just as I've used the phrase there, and we've had a couple of emails from from listeners about geolocation, what the phrase means to geolocate something. It's basically geography and location is what it is is a mashup of. The process of identifying a location or a person by means of digital information. Now, that could be photos compared with and reference to existing imagery or information we already know about a place. It could be mobile phone data, cell phone data taken from a number of different uh, cell phone towers to determine a location. That's obviously easier in areas with more cell tower coverage, usually urban areas. So geolocation is used by governments, especially the military, to go and find people and, um, and locations, but also open source intelligence groups who then post imagery and data to sort of show workings, the classic sort of show, show your working type thing, often post on social media, long threads about how they found certain locations, usually accompanied by loads of data, coordinates and so on and so forth, so that we can all then go off and go through the workings if we want. However, reputable sources such as the ISW, when they say geolocated footage, we are safe to take it that it is is correct and has been verified by sensible analysts. They use those kind of terms to differentiate information from other analysis that might be based on on a, a wide array of information, but is still essentially an, an estimate, an analyst's um, assessment of what's going on. Geolocated footage, uh, by like I say, by a reputable source, you can take it as as correct. You know, it's an image of something that is real, but a good source will also show how it came to that conclusion, so that we can all go and do our our own uh, work if we want to. Now, separately, let's go move to the east. The 
there's I mean, extremely intense fighting still around Avdivka. Senior Ukrainian military officials are saying that their troops are facing a new Russian onslaught. General Valery Zaluzhny, who's the um, who's the the top of the tree, Ukraine's commander in chief, he put a video on Telegram yesterday in, in which he seemed to be briefing or or conferring with others, other officers around the Kerr and in Kupiansk, town further north. Uh, again, that's been that's seen increased Russian activity in the last few weeks. So in a commentary to the video, General Zaluzhny says the enemy is not relenting in attempts to break through our defences and surround Andivka. The enemy is actively bringing in assault units and large amounts of armoured equipment and using artillery and aircraft. Now, Alexander Stupin, who's the spokesperson for the southern group of Ukrainian forces, he was speaking on national TV yesterday and he was talking about this constant pressure on Avdivka. We've been reporting that for some time now. They, they seem to be, Russian seem to be, Russia seems to be trying a, an envelopment from the north and, and the south. But there is a, a lot of footage out there you'll see of, of just really, really basic tactics, running forwards, driving vehicles in a straight line that then get hit by... Uh, mines or, or other anti-tank missiles and drones and what have you. There's very dramatic footage out there of a, a first-person view drone operated, what we, as we're told, by Ukraine's 59th Motorized Brigade hitting a Russian TOS-1 Alpha Sol... Let me get this right. Sol-Sepyok Thermobaric MLRS. So the Thermobaric MLRS, multiple launch rocket systems, they basically use fuel air explosive. They are much bigger than a conventional explosion for the size of weapon used and it's you it basically creates a, a cloud of gas in the air and then ignites that so that those are used for clearing trenches clearing buildings uh, if you hit a building with a with a with a high explosive it will I mean, it might bring the building down but it will it will sort of damage the room where it's hit and but won't extend through the building a thermobaric weapon will because it essentially draws all the draws its power from the oxygen available in the in the building and the people in it and then sets lights all that so it's absolutely horrific now solm stepiok means blazing sun so quite apt in this regard and justin bronk our, our friend and friend of the pod senior research fellow for air power and military technology at rusi the royal united services institute he posted on twitter tos one alpha is a particularly horrendous weapon in terms of the effects its large thermobaric barrages have on dug-in troops and urban areas there aren't a huge number of them one fewer today now, talking numbers, Ukraine's MOD said today that Russia has lost its 5,000th tank. They've destroyed the 5,000th tank since the start of the full-scale invasion. That obviously begs the questions, how many did they have to start with and how many have they got now? So a quick, uh, a quick dive here, if I may. To get an idea of that, I reached for my Bible on this, which is the, uh, the IISS, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, their Military Balance 2023, a huge tome. It's the annual assessment of global military capabilities and defence economics. But in that, they say, and this is for main battle tanks only, main battle tanks only, so not infantry fighting vehicles, recce vehicles, armoured personnel carriers, engineering vehicles, blah, 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 just the tanks. They say Russia started with 1,800 tanks in service comprising 150 T-62, 1,150 T-72 of all variants, so that's Bravo, Bravo Alpha, Bravo 3, Bravo 3M, 200 T-80s of all variants, BVU, BVM, and 300 T-90s of the Alpha and the Mike varieties. But then in reserve, Russia had five, another 5,000 tanks, comprising T-62, 72, 80, and 90. So that takes us to 6,800 as at February the 24th last year. We know they've brought some back into service from much older, the T-54, 55 era, and they will have repaired some. But from that, you're talking circa seven, 8,000, let's say. If they've lost 5,000, then they've, they've, that's taken a massive bite out of them. 3,000 tanks, you, know, you still don't want them parked on your lawn, but the numbers just are colossal, the number they've lost. But equally, they've still got very, a, a large capability there. Not all in Ukraine, largely, but of course they've got other bits and pieces around uh, around the world. But just, uh, just to try and put those numbers in some form of perspective. Okay, a couple more. Attackums. Ukraine is going to receive US-supplied Attackums. Obviously the Army, uh, nothing obvious about it, apologies. Army Tactical Missile System, long-range precision missile, on a regular basis, according to Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kaleva, he said, uh, as we thought, that this pledge came as a direct result of the of an agreement between President Zelensky and Biden when they were when they met in Washington in September. 
Not clear how many missiles have been delivered. New York Times citing two Western officials say the US has sent about 20, we think. The strike on Tuesday, we think, was at least two. UK's MOD, British MOD, assessing now that nine Russian aircraft were destroyed at Berdyansk and five in, at Luhansk in, that, uh, in, that, in those blasts. Now then, separately, Putin visited the headquarters of Russian forces in the southern city of Rostov-on-Don late yesterday. You remember that from uh, the start of Prigozhin's mad dash up the up the motorway or mutiny you know, bounty. Uh, he was getting a report on the progress of operations in Ukraine. That was according to Russian state TV this morning. This footage showed Valery Gerasimov, who's Russia's chief of the general staff. He was telling Putin that the troops are carrying out their tasks in line with the operational plan. Fine. And then finally, yeah, finally for me, Kirsch Bridge. Let's go to the Kirsch Bridge. So the bridge on the eastern side of Crimea linking occupied Crimea to Russia. British MOD saying it is now almost certainly a significant security burden for Russia. They say the bridge remains a vital link in sustaining Russia's occupation of Crimea and the forces it has in southern Ukraine. But it's now almost certainly a significant security burden. One alert requiring multi-domain protection, including the use of air defence systems and crews who would otherwise be deployed elsewhere. So, right, multi-domain protection, it means lots of stuff, right? It means, like, protection from the air, protection from, from the sea, surface and subsurface, electronic warfare, all the rest of it. But they've got, to, they've got to look after the bridge, basically. Russian security forces' confidence in their ability to protect what MOD, British MOD, say is a large and vulnerable structure will continue to be threatened by the ingenuity, their words, ingenuity of Ukraine's military and security services. You'll remember the bridge was last struck by Ukraine in July, the second time the structure was hit after it was partially closed following a huge explosion last October. And then it fully reopened, fully in in quotation marks, fully reopened in February because, I say in quotation marks, Russian Deputy Prime Minister Marat Kushnulin said yesterday that damage to the structure from the Ukrainian strike early this year had been repaired ahead of schedule-ish, uh, possibly. I mean, the bridge is open, but there are restrictions still applied to it due to procedures enacted following the Ukrainian strike in October last year, and trucks and fuel supplies continue to be moved by ferry on, onto Crimea, into Crimea. So it's not. it might be open, but only open to pedal bikes and, and all that kind of stuff, and, and vehicles, I'm being silly. But, you know, it is not fully operational again, no way, and it could now be a target for things like ATACMs. Although we, th- we think the ATACMs that have been supplied are the shorter range, so about 100 miles, and the cluster munition variant, not the longer range, 200 miles, and the single unitary warhead, i.e. a massive explosive warhead. That's the kind of thing that you'd need to hit the bridge and put a hole in it. So the cluster munitions would do stuff against vehicles on the bridge, but would not destroy the bridge itself. But it's not fully operational, no matter what Deputy Prime Minister Mr Kushnalin says. And I will take a pause for breath there, David. Well, thank you very much, Tom. That was a rather large download for a Friday, but thank you so much for talking um, us through all of that. It's great to hear the big book of tanks getting another outing there as well. Francis Durnley, uh, we missed you yesterday, um, but rather a lot is happening in politics and diplomacy. Can you talk us through what you've been looking at? Well, thanks, David. It certainly is. And in the past fortnight, one of the key questions has been the implications of events unfolding in the Middle East for Ukraine and indeed the degree of correlation between those two crises. Most world leaders, President Zelensky aside, have been hesitant to draw too many overt connections, perhaps so as not to allow events in Israel to have strategic implications for Ukraine. They have, in short, tried to keep a degree of separation. But it feels like the ground is beginning to shift. In a rare address to the nation last night, President Biden said overtly that conflict and chaos could spread if America's allies do not prevail. He warned that both Putin and Hamas terrorists are tyrants who must be defeated, urging Congress not to let petty partisan politics block his impending aid package to Ukraine and Israel. Now, Biden, who's of course just returned a day ago from Tel Aviv, said the assault on Israel echoes the nearly 20 months of war, tragedy and brutality inflicted on the people of Ukraine. He went on, Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. 
they both want to completely annihilate a neighbouring country. As such, Biden said he would deliver, as I say, an urgent budget request to Congress on Friday, which would include provisions to rearm Ukraine and ensure Israel's military edge. He didn't disclose the cost of the package, but it is expected to span $105 billion for the next year, including $60 billion for Ukraine and $14 billion for Israel. It's also understood to include $10 billion for humanitarian efforts, $14 billion for managing the US-Mexico border and fighting fentanyl trafficking, and $7 billion for the Indo-Pacific region, which includes Taiwan. He said he was hoping that all, combining all of these issues into one piece of legislation would create the necessary political coalition for congressional approval. I think that's part of it. I think another part of it, of course, is increased anxiety about the upcoming election and the increased tensions that may come into play around defence spending. And so they're trying to get it out of the way now before it becomes something that may well be impeded later on, particularly given some of that scepticism in the Republican Party, which I'll come to in a moment. Just to carry on with what Mr. Biden said, though, time is of the essence. I know we have our divisions at home. We have to get past them. We can't let petty, partisan, angry politics get in the way of our responsibility as a great nation. We cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like Putin win. Funding is a smart investment that's going to pay dividends for American security for generations. When terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going and the costs and the threats to America in the world keep rising. He went and finally concluded by saying the package would help make hostile actors know that Israel is stronger than ever and prevent this conflict from spreading. So a very, very important speech and intervention this I think but despite his sense of urgency he will have several hurdles to clear before he can get the package approved. The House is currently in crisis. The Republican majority has been unable to select a speaker to replace ousted Kevin McCarthy. Jim Jordan, the embattled GOP speaker nominee lost two votes this week. On Thursday he said he would back plans to temporarily expand the powers of Patrick McHenry, the interim speaker, before U-turning to say he would seek a third ballot on Friday Friday morning. So that's just in a few hours time. The difficulty is on top of the opposition of conservative Republicans who have already rejected sending more weapons to Ukraine as its battle against the invasion approaches the two year mark. They were pleased this week to see the US have to hold back some shells destined for Kiev, instead redeploying them for Israel's fight against Hamas. But there'll also be resistance on the other side of the political spectrum when it comes to military assistance for Israel. But all of that said, the chaos in the US, Zelensky sounded upbeat following a phone call with President Biden. He said the degree of bipartisan support from the US is extremely encouraging, his words for Kiev and its troops. And it may be that as defence becomes an even higher priority for the American public, that Ukraine does benefit rather than the reverse as spending inevitably increases and fewer roadblocks in Congress emerge. And that's even if the two conflicts don't become interconnected in people's minds. But if they do, then anything could happen. And on that subject, the former British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has written for The Telegraph today, along with the French philosopher and filmmaker Bernard-Auré Lévy, drawing a direct correlation between Ukraine and events in the Middle East. I'll quote from it in my final thought, but I think its essence can be best summarised by its final line, which reads, To our American friends, we say, we must help protect Israel and help save Ukraine. To choose one would be a betrayal of both. But I'll come to that, as I say. Now, speaking to other political fault lines, I spoke earlier this week about the appearance of Viktor Orban alongside Putin in China. The Guardian has written a piece compiling some reactions from European leaders. They quote the Czech president, Peter Pavel, who says European leaders must not fall for the tactics of Putin. On Wednesday, the Estonian prime minister, Kaya Kallis, told Reuters that images of the Hungarian prime minister shaking hands with Putin were very, very unpleasant and defied logic. 
The US ambassador in Budapest also sharply criticised the meeting, saying to The Guardian, Hungary's leader chooses to stand with a man whose forces are responsible for crimes against humanity in Ukraine and alone among our allies. While Russia strikes Ukrainian civilians, Hungary pleads for business deals. But The Guardian do quote the response from the Hungarian government. They say the stance of Hungary regarding Russia and the rise in Ukraine has been clear from the get-go. We always advocated for open and transparent dialogue with the parties involved to assist in finding a peaceful solution to this bloody conflict. I find a certain amusement in how these politicians flock to criticise the Hungarian government and our openly declared interest in maintaining a diplomatic relationship with Russia, while their moral superiority is a facade at best. So pretty strong words from them. Thanks very much, Francis, for talking us through all of that. Before we move to our final thoughts on this Friday, I understand there's been a bit of a development regarding foreign journalists operating in Russia. Can you talk to us about this? Sure, yes, there is. Many listeners will be familiar with the case of Ivan Gaskovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter who was detained in Russia on espionage charges. He lost his appeal against his arrest on Tuesday, meaning he'll stay in jail until at least the end of November. But we learned today that another American journalist has been detained in Russia and charged with failing to register as a foreign agent. So Alsu Kurmashiva, an editor with the US Congress-funded Radio Free Europe, formerly Radio Liberty, I believe, is a dual Russian-US citizen and is being held at a temporary detention centre, we understand. That's according to the New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists. A representative of Russian human rights news website OFD Info told the CPJ that she would most likely be transferred to pre-trial detention shortly. She lives in the Czech Republic, but entered Russia on May the 20th for a family emergency, we understand. She was temporarily detained at the Kazan airport on June 2nd before her return flight, where both her US and Russian passports were confiscated, and she was fined for failing to register her American passport with Russian authorities. Russian authorities are saying must release her immediately and drop all charges against her. The CPJ are saying, and they, their statement is where well, it doesn't put its punches. It says journalism is not a crime, and her detention is yet more proof that Russia is determined to stifle independent reporting. Alsu was detained simply because she was an employee of Radio Liberty. In fact, now any independent journalist in Russia risks the same thing. It's very politically risky, David, for any country to arrest a journalist. So one has to assume that this is deliberate as part of the broader strategy in Russia to make it increasingly difficult for foreign journalists to operate. If someone shows you who they are, believe them. Thank you very much, Francis and Dom, for all of your reporting. Can I come to you both uh, for your final thoughts then on Friday the 20th of October? Yeah, well, let me, uh, let me jump in first there. So I've been looking at um, a journalist, Nolan Peterson, who's, who's, who's worth a look, journalist and writer, uh, also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Centre, someone who spent many years covering Ukraine. And he's been talking about Avdivka, the, uh, the battle I mentioned at the start that's been going on for, for weeks now and is, and is extremely intense. And he has said, this is a direct quote from a, uh, a Twitter thread, said, today Avdivka is in ruins and only about 1,600 out of some 30,000 civilians remain there. They live permanently in basements, hiding from Russia's bombs and artillery. Like in so many other places in Ukraine, in Avdivka, Russia faces the limits of the lies it tells itself, namely that people who speak Russian want to be a part of Russia. And so Russia does what it does. Sorry. And so Russia does what it has done time and time again. It simply destroys the people and places that betray its fantasies of greatness. And I just think it's it's worth focusing on on Avdivka and the, the the huge fight there. The, the losses that the Ukraine will undoubtedly be taking there are echoes of Bakhmut. In Bakhmut, remember there were so many fault lines there between the regular military, the, the so-called people's republics, they had Wagner in there that it was Ukraine deemed it worth their efforts and the loss to keep pushing on those fault lines. And I think that went a long way months later to to the crumble that we saw with Prigozhin and Wagner Group and, and all the rest of it. So, you know, I don't think Ukraine commits to these fights. I mean, Avdivka is not you know, massively strategically important. It, it helps. It would help Russia 
claim that they're taking the oblast, but you know it doesn't do a lot, doesn't go anywhere really. But they are they are clearly they clearly feel they can hold the town, what's left of it, and the sacrifice is worth it. But then on the other side, Russia just they just don't care. If you look at some of the imagery about how they are attacking these positions, it, they just it, it's I'm sort of a heartbeat away from thinking they are just trying to get Ukraine to use up all their ammunition, anti-tank ammunition, the cluster munitions drones and what have you because they are just using their people and their vehicles as target practice basically from what i can see i'm not quite there yet i don't think they would even they would be that stupid but when i look at the tactics they're employing it's just horrific and i and so i I can believe that figure that the ukrainian mod put out that five thousand russian tanks have been destroyed i can absolutely see it and i think what we're seeing and avdivka and writ large is are, the, are these fantasies of greatness, as Nolan Peterson says. And Ukraine, it's their fight, it's their choice. But, I mean, they are they are fighting for the values that we believe in and they evidently consider it worth a sacrifice to show up and absolutely explode these fantasies of greatness that, that Putin uh, is trying to export. And, uh, and so all we can do is, is continue to support them in in that fight. But do go and have a look at, at Nolan Peterson's uh, coverage of Avdivka. Thank you very much, Tom Nichols. Francis Sternley. Thanks. I mentioned earlier this opinion piece written by Boris Johnson and Bernard-Henri Lévy for us about the correlation in their eyes between what is happening in the Middle East and the war in Ukraine and the importance of supporting both sides. So I thought I would read some extracts from that op-ed now and we'll be sure to have a link in the description to the article as well. When Hamas terrorists launched their nauseating attacks on Israel, we in the West responded instantly and instinctively. We condemned those terrorists for the fundamental barbarism of their aims and methods and we condemn them today in spite of all those who would muddy the waters. We know that those Hamas terrorists who attacked Israeli families are now part of a growing global coalition for evil, a coalition of anti-democratic and illiberal forces that have no concern for human rights, no concern for civilised values, and who are now determined to advance their agenda around the world and to take advantage of Western weakness wherever they can. So it is all the more troubling to hear voices raised today, especially among US lawmakers, who assert that in this intensifying global struggle, we must now make a choice. There are some on Capitol Hill who claim that if we are to do more to help Israel against that country's many foes, then we must now reconsider or cut back on our support for Ukraine. That would be a tragic mistake. It would be a failure to recognise the heroism of the Ukrainians who are fighting not merely for their country, but for the very cause of freedom around the world. It would be a failure to grasp that the appalling conflict taking place in Israel in the last 10 days is essentially the same fight that has been taking place in Ukraine for the last 10 years. There can be no binary, zero, zum choice here, between helping the Ukrainians to fight Putin and helping Israel to fight off the terrorists of Hamas. When we look at Putin's thugs in Avdika or jihadi thugs in Gaza, we are looking at different heads of the same hydra. It is no surprise that Russia has failed to condemn the Hamas atrocities of October the 7th or that the Russian media drew comparisons between the Israeli blockade on Gaza and the Nazi siege of Leningrad in World War II. It is hardly accidental that the Russian government maintains such good relations with the two most important global sponsors of Hamas, Iran and Syria. That is because Putin's Russia shares with Hamas a blatant disregard for the laws of war. We have seen in the war against Ukraine how Putin's armies have wittingly and deliberately trained their fire on crowded train stations, on theatres, churches, restaurants. They even attacked the Baba Yar Memorial in Kiev to the victims of the Holocaust. Putin's thugs and Hamas terrorists are morally identical in making no distinction between civilian and military targets. And that is no wonder, because their objectives are really the same, to destroy liberal democracy. The children killed or deported from Mariupol are the victims of the same brand of barbarism as the children killed in the kibbutz. This is not the time to give priority to one set of victims. They both deserve the protection of the West. We are now fighting on two fronts, for the same values and the same ideals against the same anti-democratic and terroristic forces. 
thank you, Dom and Francis. Before we go to our interview today, a quick note from me. Listeners will of course be aware of the awful violence that has erupted in Israel and Gaza following the surprise attack of Hamas terrorists on October the 7th. To cover this war, The Telegraph has launched a new podcast. It's called Battle Lines, Israel-Gaza. We aim to provide insight into the conflict from our reporters on the ground and experts in the region and around the world. For listeners of Ukraine The Latest, many of the names will be familiar. In our first episode, I caught up with our new Middle East correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, defence editor Daniel Sheridan, and senior foreign correspondent Sophia Yam. We spoke about Natalia's reporting from the ground, the impact of the war on policy and diplomacy, and the reaction of democracies and autocracies around the world. Click the link in your show notes, or search for Battle Lines Israel-Gaza in your preferred podcast app. The first few episodes we will include on the Ukraine The Latest feed, but Battle Lines will exist in its own space as well, of course. Thank you so much for listening. Earlier today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Anton Pavlovsky in our studio in London. Anton is the founder and CEO of Ukrainian educational tech app Headway. With offices all around the world, Headway is one of a cluster of impressive Ukrainian tech ventures to emerge in the last few years. It offers users concise book summaries and, in the words of its founder, aims to make education bite-sized, even gamified. I wanted to know more about the app, the tech scene in Ukraine, and how CEOs and companies are dealing with 19 months of war. Here's our conversation. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges and um, the work you've done inside of Ukraine during the war? I mean, you must have seen a lot and had to change essentially how you work. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We had to adapt. And uh, uh, this full-scale invasion disrupted lots of things in terms of like, processes, in terms of peace of mind, of course. We, we, we haven't had that in a while, in quite a while. Uh, but both like, headway, like people in Headway and people in Ukraine are incredibly resilient. And that came actually uh, a bit of a surprise. I mean, even we Ukrainians are surprised. And it's so like empowering to see what other people in Ukraine are doing right now to to help us basically win this war, which we didn't start and we didn't provoke it, but now we have to deal with it. And uh, our leadership uh, in our country, it's like, extremely inspiring. And like many cases that we've seen, from tech, from industry, from like like regular people coming on first days, uh, like blocking tanks and like vehicles with their bare hands without like anything. So that inspires and that uh, actually empowers us to continue to try to help Ukraine win in different regards, economically as well. Like, uh, Business tech is an important part of economy, and uh, it's increasingly important part of Ukrainian economy right now. What? Why is that? Well, two uh, to, to answer is twofold. So first, we have an incredible talent, technical talent in Ukraine. That's, uh, I think, uh, our legacy from Soviet Union. So Soviet Union brought lots, lots of distress. Uh, but uh, like education, that's something that uh, so, like they they like have done or they they did, uh, and uh, we have good technical engineering education. Like humanities, to less extent and to less degree, and I I believe that's something that we should work on. Like culture, history, s- things that are happening right now. They, it's like not an engineering problem, right? Mm. So I believe that Silicon, for example, comparing uh, Ukrainian tech ecosystem and to Silicon Valley, uh, I think we lack that like humanities part, like uh, communication, emotional intelligence, empathy. It's incredibly important, like empathy, for example, both to work as a team, collaborate, but also to understand what users or customers what they need. They can't always say you uh, what they need because they don't know. They don't know what's possible, 
right? And that's up to us to uncover and to discover what's possible, what they need, and to to marry basically uh, those those things and to provide great customer service, customer experience, great products. Yeah, 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 so that's that's first part. But Mm. there is a, a... uh, 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 not so good part as well because other sectors are struggling uh, in Ukraine after the wo- uh, this fu- full-scale invasion started. So industry, like traditional like sectors that were, uh, Ukraine were very strong on, like uh, agriculture, some uh, industrial production, some metallurgy and, and whatnot. So uh, ma- many like industries suffer, and tech it, it's like not a safe harbor, but yeah, maybe it's not the, the the best expression. But I think you you get it right. So we can provide lots of value. We can continue to work. We can do services uh, and provide services abroad. That's 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 the biggest part. Like actually, it's the second from the top industry right now in terms of like experts in Ukraine. I remember interviewing somebody in Odessa from the tech sector quite a few months ago who spoke about um, the war. He called it war-life balance. And he sort of said that in a... He, he knew he was being sort of a bit a bit cheeky saying it like that. But it, that phrase really stuck with me. And I wondered, how do you, as a company, as a CEO, how do you sort of think about how to deal with the war with and balance that against the business you have to run? What kind of things... Do, do you, um, have you done for the employees? How does the business change to support them through that? Yeah, uh, expression. I haven't heard that expression, but uh, it, 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 it rings true to me. So definitely we had to adapt on different and many levels. So first of all, we relocated and 300 plus people. So even though we were like 120 strong company uh, because we helped relatives also to relocate to uh, first to safety investing parts of Ukraine then then abroad so we we, we have opened an office in Warsaw and uh, helped not just with like moving logistics but also we provided some extra extra payments for like relocation and Many people relocated, but you know what happened since then? 80% came back. Oh. So mo- most of our employees who we helped to relocate, who like relocated, they, they returned. And it, uh, it means a lot to me, and uh, it speaks a lot about renaissance of Ukrainian culture, of uh, identity, and yeah, that's very important. So uh, other things that, that we, we, we provided, like lots of internal lectures on, on on different things, on burnout as well, on sleep. Uh, we are doing lots of corporate social responsibility projects, like educational projects. We we're and and we're like brainstorming what we, we can do. Also, we've recently launched Essence of Ukraine. It's a big project where we like, summarized uh, Ukrainian authors, like uh, Ukrainian books from Ukrainian authors. And, and uh, it's a collection that, because one of our products, Headway, uh, is non-fiction book summaries, right? We provide it in a gamified manner. So we summarized Ukrainian authors. Uh, we we contacted all of them. And it's a free collection for a- a- anyone to enjoy uh, uh, around the world. So we, it's in English, also in Spanish. We're now expanding into s- Spanish language. Uh, and also infrastructure, like civilian infrastructure, energy infrastructure, uh, it, it got attacked uh, heavily last year uh, at winter, and we expect this winter the same. So we've done lots of things on our like o- like business continuity so we have like hundreds of kilowatts of generator fuel also like water and like food like like for oh, these things are and I, I may not come uh, to, to they will not happen i hope mm. uh, most likely that 
they won't happen. But we have to think about even like, like even if it's a slight chance, we have to prepare for it. So that's what we're doing. And the last one I'll mention that all that, so people have this sense of responsibility, and I can see it. So peer like peer pressure, but in a good way. So people understand that we all in a way, fighting this war. Of course, people on the front lines, they are incredibly brave and their sacrifice, you, I, I can't even like compare what we are doing to their sacrifice. B- but this sense of like their sacrifice, they're on the front, it, it's, it's something that pushes people to grind themselves down, basically. So people... Are extremely like ambitious and hardworking, and it brings burnout about basically. So I'm talking about rest a lot, about vacation, about allowing ourselves to take a vacation because otherwise we just will grind ourselves down and we won't be able to create new jobs. We're doing it right now. We're growing at at a faster pace than be- before the war, actually. So we we managed to increase our growth, even though the revenue and number of users, of, of course, it's higher. So the baseline is higher. So it's it's harder to grow, increasingly harder. But we, we managed to do it, and that's a testament to the team's real determination. And like I'm incredibly incredibly grateful f- to them and to all Ukrainians who basically live in 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 that condition. So they pushing themselves, grinding themselves. But please, if someone like hears me, like please. Allow yourself some recharge time because like it's 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 more sustainable. Can we just talk quickly about you mentioned the new essence of Ukraine project and part of what Headway does is to as you said summarize Ukrainian authors, try and share Ukrainian culture with the world, and point people towards cultural figures, authors who they may not have heard of before. For you, who who would you want listeners to sort of look at? Who who is your favorite Ukrainian author? You think people listening to this should really try and understand and go looking for? Oh my god! <laughs> it, it, it's, I put you on the spot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you you put you put me on the spot. Uh, but first, author comes to mind uh, is n- n- not a nonfiction author. Actually, like I'm. Uh, our listeners can't see it right now, but I'm wearing uh, like a, t- a tiger hoodie. With, it's a splendid a, tiger hoodie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a tiger print. So I, I actually really love Ivan Bagriani, and uh, he has novel Tiger Catchers, and it's it's incredible. It's amazing. So it's it's about actually Ukraine under Soviet Union, and so it's a novel, and it's. Actually, it's both novel with deep meanings, but also with great plot. It's like it's, it's kind of like Shantaram in a way. I mean, it's incredible adventure, and you can read it like that. But also, it has lots of meanings. There, like Gulag system, and and Ivan Bagrani's. It's not. Uh, autobiographical per se, like 100% but in a way so uh, his life was incredibly hard uh, he was in like gulag system in soviet union then in concentration camp in germany so and he 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 actually wrote this novel in 14 days and it's incredible, amazing novel. And uh, there is an English translation. I be, I believe it tiger catchers in Ukrainian. It's Tikhalove, uh, and yeah, like I I can't recommend it enough. With regards to uh, nonfiction, I can recommend uh, I, I can recommend Sergei Plohi. He has like several books on Ukrainian history, modern history, like as well. And I think they should be translated to English 
as well. I, I'm not prepared for that particular question. I'd actually Sorry. Yeah, thank <laughs> I, you I for to ask, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you for for this question, and I, I'll definitely be more prepared when someone else asks me <laughs> that question next time. Yeah. Do you think there's any lessons that you've learned over the past 20 months, 19 months of the full-scale invasion that you think people outside of Ukraine should take on board? What would you, if you could tell tech leaders in America or the UK, this is the, here are some lessons that I have that you should pay attention to? Every Ukrainian remembers where uh, where he like, or she were on February 24th, 2022. So. I happened to be here in London, actually. Uh, I, I was setting up our office in London. Of course, I canceled my meetings. I bought the first ticket to Poland, and I came to, uh, to like Romanian border and helped like, people to cross uh, uh, from our company, from our fr- friendly companies, from other people, like relatives or like whoever because we didn't know what will happen but uh, the story is about this evening on 20, uh, February 24th I, uh, because the ticket was on the next day so I uh, went out uh, just to walk to unwind and I was walking Covent Garden, Covent Garden Market great place in London I really love it and I was walking and People were laughing, having fun, uh, dining, and I was thinking about what is happening in Ukraine in this moment, and I thought, well, it's so fragile. We have re- a responsibility to keep this peace, progress, so it just it won't keep itself. It, it's many people think that it's just like the history it's inevitable that the progress is happening so the progress is happening because lots of people taking responsibility on themselves to to make this progress to keep things to work even right so it's a miracle actually and i think that we should really value what we have achieved and to work diligently to uh, keep it from harm, keep uh, the systems, the people, of course, of course, the people, uh, the, mo- the most important part. So yeah, maybe it's a bit philosophical, but, well, when, when, when we lost it, and that's, again, maybe it's n- nothing new to anyone, but, well... We lost it, and we we value it like much, much more. And those like values that we're standing for, that actually we share with you, I believe most of them. I believe we can bring something as well. So our culture is a bit different. Each culture is a bit different, and I, I believe that this like bravery and determination and resiliency uh, that's something that. Yeah, we we developed for centuries when uh, we were like colonized, oppressed, and people tried to wipe us out. But yeah, but this peace progress, please like, work at it, keep it. It's it's incredibly important, and it's not someone else's government's or someone's responsibility. Everyone can do something to to keep it that way and to bring the better future about. Anton, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to to hear and understand? I I would just actually add a few points, maybe a bit self-serving, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yest yesterday, like headway. Uh, won an award, the GP Bullhounds All-Star Challenge. Uh, so we, we, we won two awards, like as an All-Star Company of the Year like and Entrepreneur of the Year. And I just would, I, I want to s- thank my team, people who actually like, d- deserve this award 100%. And uh, that's an incredible win for our company, but uh, I believe it's a win f- 
for like tech ecosystem as well. It's a win even for Ukrainians and Ukraine because we have a really strong, strong tech uh, tech talent and uh, ecosystem and uh, wins in on on this front. Even though it's well, I you know, maybe I'm wrong to to call it like that. No, it's uh, uh, in this arena. Uh, they are important in any arena, like in sports, and like, it, it, it motivates us to to keep going. So I just want to thank uh, uh, all, all the team and people who supported us and helped us to uh, to get to this point, and uh, just uh, want to thank to a- every Ukrainian who's listening. Uh, well, uh, you're doing you're doing a great job. If you're not well, like you can, you can do you can do a great job, and that's fine. Uh, just uh, just let's uh, let let's let's do what we must, and uh, yeah, absolutely, we'll win. Thank you so much for your time. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.